Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. This is Carol Casella. I'm reading from my first novel, Oxygen. I'm an anesthesiologist in Seattle, Washington. I've also been a fiction writer most of my life, and this is my first foray into combining these two personal worlds. Chapter 1. People feel so strong, so durable. I anesthetize airline pilots, corporate executives, high school principals, mothers of well-brought-up children, judges and janitors, psychiatrists and salespeople mountain climbers, and musicians. People who have strutted and struggled and breathed on this planet for 20, 30, 70 years, defying the inexorable, entropic decay of all living things, all of them clinging to existence by one molecule, oxygen. The entire complex human machine pivots on the pinnacle of oxygen. The bucket brigade of energy metabolism that keeps us all alive ends with oxygen as the final electron acceptor. Take it away, and the cascade clogs up in minutes, backing up the whole precisely tuned engine until it collapses, choked, cold, and blue. Two portals connect us to oxygen, the mouth and the nose. Appreciated more for all their other uses, tasting, smelling, smiling, whistling, blowing smoke and blowing kisses, supporting sunglasses and lipstick designers, perfumeries and plastic surgeons. Seal them for the duration of the morning weather report, and everything you had planned for the rest of your life evaporates in a puff of imagination. There is a moment during the induction of general anesthesia when I'm intimately bonded to my patient, a moment of transferred power. I squeeze the drug out of the syringe into the IV line, and watch the face slacken, watch the last organized thoughts slip from consciousness, see breathing shallow, slow, stop. If I deserted my patient deep in that swale of sleep, as suffocation colored blood blue, the lips would turn violet, pink skin would dull to gray, and the steady beep, beep, beep of the heart monitor would fade, then falter, like an archaeological ruin, the brain would die in levels, personality, judgment, memory, movement, collapsing like falling bricks to crush the brainstem's steady pulse of breath and blood. There are points in an otherwise routine day when I'm struck by how precariously this unconscious patient dangles, like a hapless fly on a spider's thread. It's like drowning, but blessed unconsciousness precedes desperate air hunger. At the last instant, I swoop in and deliver a rescuing breath, adjust my machine to take over what the brainstem can no longer command, make the lungs move oxygen in and out to keep the heart beating, transferring each oxygen molecule to the cells. It becomes so easy after years of the rescue. It becomes so routine to watch the ebb of consciousness followed by the ebb of breath and then to spring up as the obligate hero, it no longer feels like power. It feels like a job. I'm an anesthesiologist, 
a practitioner of the art and science of anesthesia. The word means, literally, no sensation. In our modern lexicon, it denotes a temporary loss of sensation, an absence of pain during an otherwise painful procedure. That's how I see my job, to make painful events painless, to coax and manipulate the human mind to give up its fierce clutch on control, its evolutionary reflex to flee from dismemberment and violation. Granted, most patients come to surgery out of choice. The shoulder that stiffens on the squash court, the gallbladder that pangs on digesting a rosemaried leg of lamb, the nuisances of body fat or age lines. Then, of course, there are the unfortunate twists of nature that destined some of us to die before a graceful blur into old age, the cancers creeping into baseball-sized tumors while we pay our bills, prune our roses, plan our children's birthday parties, or the silent shearing of aortic aneurysms and coronary vessels and carotid arteries that snap our smoothly humming lives in half while we argue with our teenagers or make love to our husbands and wives. These events place us supine on the white-sheeted gurneys rolling down the long, green-tiled, fluorescent-lit hallways into the cold and windowless operating rooms of this nation. Today is a day like any other workday for me. I shut off my alarm before five and stand shivering beside my bathroom heater while the shower runs to warm. Somewhere in the city, my patients are also beginning to rouse, anxious about their operations, worried about the ache or illness that can only be cured with a knife, trying to imagine the inevitable scar, trying to anticipate the pain, maybe even trying to envision me, a stranger, the only doctor directly involved in their care whom they've never met. People may select their family practitioners based on comfort and trust and their surgeons through reputation or referral, but anesthesiologists are usually assigned to an operating room rather than a particular patient. Hospitals couldn't absorb car accidents and emergency C-sections and gunshot wounds into an already crowded surgery schedule without a flexible, interchangeable anesthesia team. That anonymity almost kept me from choosing this specialty when I was in medical school. I wanted to be involved with my patients' lives, not just be a transient manager of their pain. I balked at the hubris of asking anyone to yield so much control to me after only a few introductory words. But within the first week of my anesthesia rotation, I discovered that I loved this work, its precision and focus, its balance of technical skill and clinical judgment, finessing the interplay of heart and lungs while the brain sleeps titrating narcotics and nerve blocks to that sweet spot in which a cancer patient's pain is relieved and they can still enjoy the time they have left with the people they love. And inside the scant space of my preoperative interview, I've found an entire cosmos of healing, the quick read of trepidation or naive acquiescence, the flash of entrapment or submission, perceiving the exact phrase or touch that can transform me from stranger to caretaker, from assigned clinician to guardian. I can't prove that rolling into the operating room believing you will be kept safe improves the outcome of surgery, but it's where I find the artistry in my work. I slip on worn blue jeans and a loose sweater, thankful that I only have to dress for the commute. The aroma of coffee lures me into the kitchen, still dark as midnight. Tasks start to crowd out my dreams, 
My presentation on labor epidurals for the nurses is due next week. The pharmacy committee wants a rundown on muscle relaxants. I have a dozen phone calls to make, and I should have changed the oil in my car about 12,000 miles ago. My first patient today is a 46-year-old woman who will lose her right breast to cancer. I greet her in the surgical holding area, smiling, cheerful, deflecting her anxiety with rapid-fire questions and explanations, reassuring her that she wins the lowest risk classification for undergoing anesthesia, ASA 1 on a scale of 5. She is sitting up in her bed, slender and tanned, wearing light pink lipstick and tasteful eye makeup. For whom, I wonder? It gives the morning a patina of normality, as if she were headed to the tennis club instead of cleaving this invasive parasite from her body. I feel like I've met this woman before, dozens of times. She is the junior league volunteer, the poised hostess, the sorority alumna, usually referenced by her husband's full name prefixed with a missus, polished enough to be mistaken for pampered. She is the woman who does not wince when I start her IV, who asks me about my work and my family and defies me to pity her. She will beat this and move on. Wrapped warmly on the narrow operating room table, I lean next to her ear as she slips beyond knowing and whisper, I am right here with you. I will take care of you. You will wake up safe and comfortable. You will recover and be fine. The faintest rise in her heart rate is the only fear she ever shows. The case goes well. The steady high pitch of the pulse monitor tells me her red blood cells are richly saturated with oxygen. The slight valleys and peaks of her blood pressure and heart rate guide my mix of anesthetic gas flows, narcotics, and fluids. We are in an unspoken physiologic communion, my patient and I. I stand like a sentry at the gate of surgical trespass. Stevenson, the surgeon, is in a good mood this morning, thank God. His kid has just been chosen first-string quarterback in 10th grade, so maybe he's hoping college tuition will be covered. He teases Alicia, the scrub tech, about setting them up together, the things she could teach him. When the patient's lymph nodes come back from pathology free of cancer, the mood lifts for all of us, and Stevenson asks for closing music. He likes to suture the skin to Led Zeppelin. I can almost quantify how well a case is going by the volume of the background music and conversation. People on the outside seemed shocked at the irreverence of listening to a hard rock band while latex hands split or sew the tissues of living flesh. But I reassure them, that's a good sign. That's the sign that your surgeon is walking straight down the center of known territory. So at ease with the procedure, his hands are driven by comforting familiarity. That's the sign that your anesthesiologist hears the steady high tone of the oxygen and heart monitor and knows, intuits, exactly where in the operation the extra touch of narcotic or the lightened breath of gas will foment the precise blend of chemicals to keep you sleeping, unaware and senseless, until the last bandage is taped, the fresh sheet is pulled up over your chest, and you hear the reassuring whisper in your ear, Wake up, wake up. Your surgery is over, and all went well. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org slash writersblock. 
The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.